Hi, I'm Kaylee. And I'm Naomi, coming at you from the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. And this is... Sorry, murder. Listener discretion is advised. Trigger warning, this episode includes suicide and terminal illness. Take care. This episode begins in Duncan, B.C. on Vancouver Island. On January 7, 2002, at 4.26 p.m., a manager of an apartment building received a phone call from a life monitoring service. The life monitoring system belonged to a tenant named Monique, a former nun and current resident of the apartment building. The building manager entered Monique's apartment to carry out a wellness check shortly after receiving the call from the life monitoring system and found 64-year-old Monique sitting on her living room sofa, dead. The apartment manager immediately called 911. Paramedics arrived and confirmed that Monique was deceased. Police officers arrived soon after. While waiting for the coroners to arrive, officers discovered a do-not-resuscitate order signed by a physician hanging on the refrigerator. There was also a copy of Monique's will and a notebook addressed to her executor, Ms. Wendy Hepburn, laying out. How organized. The coroner found this odd. Like, why would a person just have these items laying out in plain sight when they just so happen to die? At this point, the scene of death was not being treated as a criminal matter. Police eventually left the apartment in the coroner's control. The executor, Wendy, and her husband came to the apartment and cleaned it out and emptied it as per Monique's instructions. I will just note again that there was no involvement from the police at the scene at this time. Oh, damn. The next day, the coroner informed police officers that they spoke to other tenants and learned that Monique had often spoken about suicide. In a later interview, a friend of Monique said that she had incessantly talked about dying and that she had planned to die at the age of 64, just like her father had. She had even shared pamphlets from the Right to Die Network of Canada with her friends. Another friend said that she had seen Monique on June 6, the day before her death, when she had dropped off some food. The friend was surprised when, at 10 a.m. the next day, Monique came to her place of work to pay her back for the food items. Monique appeared fine at the time and said, Talk to you later. The coroner further reported that they had found pamphlets in Monique's apartment from the Right to Die Network of Canada, and the coroner decided to seize all of Monique's medication. Whoa, that coroner is kicking ass. On January 17th, so about 10 days later, Constable Mazur took over the investigation, and it was now treated as a criminal investigation. They suspected it could have been assisted suicide. Constable Mazur then re-interviewed people in the apartment building. It turns out that there was also a spy on the day Monique died. I'm unsure if it was a neighbor or some sort of roommate-tenant situation, but they stated that they overheard a woman ask Monique if she wanted to go through with her plans. Plans. Mm-hmm. She then saw Monique eating applesauce that was in fact laced with sleep-inducing drugs, and she drank a small glass of liquor. Then she saw that Monique had a plastic bag perched on her forehead. A plastic bag perched on her forehead? Mm-hmm. That is a detailed observation from one person. Yeah, like nosy neighbors. Sleeping <laughs> Tom much? 
Between 2 and 2.30 on the day of Monique's death, a burgundy or maroon-colored van with tinted windows was observed in the apartment building's parking lot. A witness thought that it was likely a Chrysler van. A senior with short, tight, curly gray hair was observed getting out of the van. Monique greeted this woman, and the two of them walked into their apartment building. Ooh, mysterious. The two ladies were observed going into an elevator, holding suitcases. The building manager's husband greeted them. Hello. But they did not respond. The two gals got off the elevator on the third floor, where he again greeted them. Oh, hello again. Without response. Mm, Creepy. The ladies just swiftly and silently walked down the hall without acknowledging anyone around them. Oh, they knew where they were going. Constable Mazur sifted through a pile of documents from Ms. Hepburn, including Monique's will, an insurance policy, literature from the Hemlock Society, a letter from the Right to Die Society was also there addressed to Monique but signed by Evelyn Martins, a membership card from the Right to Die Network in the name of Monique, and another business card with Evelyn Martins' name on it was found. Okay, that seems pretty incriminating to see... A letter from the Right to Die Network linking Evelyn Martins and Monique. Mm Mm-hmm. The police also obtained Monique's phone records and saw that she had called um, this person, Evelyn, twice on the evening before her death. Constable Mazur searched for Evelyn Martins in the government database. He could see that she was born in 1931. She had no criminal record. He could see her home address. And he found that she was a registered owner of a red van. Like the one that was seen at Monique's apartment that day. Yes. Even more interesting, Monique's policy benefactor said that Monique was suffering from some permanent health issues and that Monique had been talking about the possibility of committing suicide, but agreed that she would not go through with any plan without telling her benefactor. Or at least she was supposed to. So at this point, the police have a pretty good idea that this was an assisted suicide, but How was this organized? Who was the mysterious older lady that visited? At this time, there was no medically assisted dying in Canada, so there was no legal way to decide to die. This was very much considered a crime. Constable Mazur sussed out Evelyn's house and indeed observed a burgundy reddish van with tinted windows parked at her place. Although it was not a Chrysler, as the witness had guessed, it was actually a GMC. So, guess what it's time for again? What? A Mr... A Mr. Big Sting. Yes. They thought that perhaps having a female officer go undercover posing as a member of Monique's family would be the best way to get information about the death from Evelyn. So, this officer posed as a granddaughter of Monique. She spoke to Evelyn on the phone about four times, and they recorded all of the conversations. Let's just hear a little snippet. Um, Naomi, would you like to be the undercover officer here? Sure. I'm confused about a lot of things, and I'm feeling guilty because I wasn't there for her, and I wasn't there for the funeral. But there's a lot of questions I have. I feel like a crappy granddaughter, you know. I'm just, like, not sleeping well. I guess I just want some reassurances, knowing that everything went well with her. Sure enough, Evelyn said that they could meet and have a chat. She wanted to put this poor dear's mind to rest. They were planning to meet in Sydney on Vancouver Island, but then Evelyn announced that she actually had some business to attend to in Vancouver. 
So they decided to meet there, as that's where this fake granddaughter was said to be located. On June 26, 2002, Evelyn and the undercover officer met face-to-face at the Grind Coffee Shop in East Van. Here's a little snippet of their conversation. I just feel so badly that there was no one there for her. Well, I was, and I held her hand. And believe me, she was just a wonderful, wonderful person. And it was very, very fast and very painless. She just went to sleep, and that's all she knew. She didn't suffer. I know. I should have been there. I feel bad. No, no. I don't think she would have wanted you to be there. So, that little snippet of the conversation was essentially the intention behind the um, the sting operation with the granddaughter. So the officers and agents wanted Evelyn to admit that she had basically told Monique to go through with this assisted suicide and that it wasn't actually Monique's idea. It was more Evelyn's. But as we continue to read on through the conversation, Evelyn just sounds like she knows exactly what she was doing to assist Monique rather than make the decision for her Um, and she says that she says that Monique is a beautiful person and that she was just so impressed with her and that this is what Monique wanted and this is exactly the way that she wanted to go she mentions that her and Monique had talked about it a lot over the years and that Evelyn wanted to make sure that this is what she wanted and even at the last moment she said Monique we can change your mind and this can this doesn't have to go through it's no trouble at all As we just heard, during that meeting, Evelyn did indeed make some incriminating statements, including that Monique had committed suicide, Evelyn had been there with Monique at the time of her suicide, Monique was happy to have help on her mission, and that Evelyn had helped other people as well. Evelyn explained that Monique wanted someone there to make sure she didn't fail, and that's why Evelyn was there on that day. Further, Evelyn admitted that she had to leave quickly and quietly because she knew that she could be charged just for being there. And this was all recorded. So now they certainly knew that she helped Monique die. Mm-hmm. After their chat, Evelyn had to head off to attend to more business in the business of death. And the police were tailing her. They had no idea of what was going to take place right under their noses. From then on, the police tailed Evelyn to Vancouver's West End to the home of Leanne Burchell. Evelyn entered the house. Leanne was laying inside, very ill and close to death after a lengthy battle with stomach cancer. Leanne was a well-read person, opinionated, and ready to offer advice to her family, whether it was wanted or not. For 25 years, she had been a teacher for young children at BC Children's Hospital, but she had to take a leave just four years before retirement because she fell ill. For three years, the cancer spread. As Leanne's death grew more imminent, she threw a going-away party with friends and family. And now, at this time, she was expected to die in less than 30 days. Honestly, reading about her illness was terrifying. It sounds so painful and so sad. Listen to this. Leanne's stomach cancer had almost progressed to the point where she could not eat food at all. The blockage was high, 
so there was not even an option to allow her to eat and use a collection bag. If she tried to eat, she would just vomit. At times when there was complete blockage, she wasn't able to swallow saliva. The cancer spread to her bowel as well, and then there was the pain. The pain was severe and morphine no longer helped at all. Leanne had developed her own technique to deal with the pain. She would make a scalding hot water bottle and place it on her abdomen. The pain from the heat would distract her body from the pain of the cancer. But that technique had its own gnarly side effect. The scalding hot water bottle burned her skin. And as the result, the skin on her stomach had turned black. And reports say there was an awful smell of burning flesh. Oh, that's so brutal. So brutal. Lastly, Leanne lived in absolute fear of her insides exploding. Stop. Doctors told her there was a chance that gases could build up inside and organs could explode. No. Very awful. She enjoyed no quality of life. So the police waited outside Leanne's house for about an hour, and then they observed Evelyn leave the premises. The police felt suspicious. They had a feeling that something was off, so they decided to go inside the house, where they then found Leanne's dead body. Leanne had left a suicide note saying that she needed self-deliverance from incurable stomach cancer. The police were shocked. They had suspected uncovering a network of death conspirators, but they did not expect to find another death right under their noses. I'm shook. An officer back in Duncan was reported to say, holy shit, when he found out. <laughs> Why is that on record? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was odd. I guess they included it just to construe how shocked they were and that there was another death immediately linked to Evelyn. Imagine saying, holy shit, and then that's your quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, later that day, June 26, 2002, Evelyn headed to the ferry to go home on Vancouver Island. The ferry ride was about an hour and a half, and police set up on the other side to arrest her when she disembarked from the boat. Evelyn was driving off the ferry in her red van when, at 6.52 p.m., she was pulled over and arrested by officers in Sydney. That's where the ferry lets you off from Vancouver Island. Evelyn asked what she was being arrested for, and the officer plainly said, assisted suicide. He read her her charter's rights and prepared to take her in for booking. Before leaving the scene, she was asked if she had any valuables in her car. She said yes, a purse and two suitcases. So the officer removed the purse and the two suitcases and brought them to the station. At the detachment, Evelyn was booked in and she contacted a lawyer. Evelyn had arrived at the police station at 5.30 p.m. but was not given water or anything to drink until after midnight when she finally received some water. That's inhumane. All the time, she was worried sick about the impact of her arrest and how this would affect her family. Meanwhile, an officer went into her bags to quote-unquote look for meds. That sounds sus. Can you do that? This woke up in court. The officer apparently joked, saying... It's a scary moment when you have to look inside a lady's purse. Okay, dude. Right? He said that he started looking into the purse without intent to search for evidence, but rather so they could complete an inventory of Evelyn's belongings, especially her valuables, so they could be put into storage. In doing so, he discovered approximately $400 in cash, which he recorded on the required prisoner report. A prisoner report is something that must be completed by the RCMP whenever a prisoner's goods are kept in RCMP custody pending release of the prisoner. He also recorded Evelyn's other possessions on that form, including the two suitcases he had removed from the van at the time of the arrest. 
He then used a video camera to take inventory of everything in her purse before locking it away. The purse and the suitcases contained, among other things, medications in the name of Leanne, latex gloves, two helium tanks, one of which had a hose and clear plastic bags attached to it, a letter addressed to Leanne from Evelyn, a document entitled The Art and Science of Suicide, several boxes of gravel, and several pouches of other various medications. Let's take a moment to talk about the bag they found, what is known as an exit bag. An exit bag was, and perhaps still is, a popular tool in the Right to Die network. It's a plastic bag with soft padded collars, a Velcro string to tighten the bag around the neck, and a spot for hoses to enter the bag for gases such as helium. Helium can prevent a sense of suffocation. At the time, exit bags were supplied by LR Publications, an entity Evelyn was associated with, with LR Publications, and this was also stated on her business card, the same one that was found at Monique's apartment. Interestingly, it is not illegal to sell exit bags. It is illegal to actually bring an exit bag to a suicidal person, but selling the bags is and was allowed. The police had earlier uncovered an email correspondence from Evelyn about purchasing exit bags. The police even discovered an entire website from the Right to Die network where Evelyn was pictured and named in an article about how to use the bags. The article also referred to the development of debreathing. This is a debreathing equipment. So, side note, the debreather was described as a rubber face mask with tubes leading from the mask to the canister filled with chemicals. The air collected in the canister is recycled, which results in the person breathing the air with no oxygen, and this can result in death in 4 to 10 minutes. So, it was evident that Evelyn was deep in this scene. The police submitted a telewarrant to search Evelyn's house in Van. A telewarrant is when you get a judge to grant a warrant or some order over the phone, usually at night or on the weekend when there's no judge regularly available. So they send out in the request and the judge granted them access to search Evelyn's house between the times of 3.30am and 10.30am that very morning on June 27th. They headed right over to Evelyn's house on the west shore. At about 4 o'clock a.m., the police were let into Evelyn's house by her daughter and relatives who happened to be visiting and staying there at the time. The police conducted a search that seized a total of 17 items. During the search, they observed that one room in the house looked like it had been used as an office, but was emptied of its contents. No computer, no papers, nothing. Had someone removed the items in the room? Was the family in on it? I think so. To have a, a room totally emptied? They must have known there was something to hide. That Evelyn could be the angel of death. I like thinking of Evelyn as an angel of death. I do too. I like thinking about the family being that loyal. Indeed, what had really happened was that the police left a message on Evelyn's answering machine at 9 o'clock p.m. the night before to advise her of her arrest for aiding and abetting with a suicide. The daughter and the relatives who were staying at the home then cleaned out the contents of Evelyn's office. Those are some rad or die bitches. The family worked together to remove the contents of the office and they packed everything into the daughter's vehicle. The daughter took the vehicle to a parking lot some distance from her residence and left it under a streetlight at about 1am. She then walked home. What a good daughter. Mm-hmm. But the police were sort of sketch. They had an idea this had happened, but they needed to get more information. Well, 
they found weed in the house and used that to blackmail the daughter. They threatened her that if she didn't give them all the evidence, they'd tell her employer that she was selling drugs. She worked at a school, so that would not be good for her. Wow, yeah. I mean, this is from a time before medically assisted suicide or marijuana were legal. Yes, very different times, but only 20 years ago. The daughter felt she had no choice but to allow them to search her vehicle. Evelyn was formally charged with aiding and counseling in two suicides. There was a year-long preliminary hearing to decide what information could go forward in the court case against Evelyn. A number of things came to light, including a breach in the telewarrant process. Evelyn's daughter had also not been advised of her right to seek counsel, and the fact that police gained access to the daughter's vehicle by threatening her was another issue. Yet, most of the findings from the police were admitted into court nevertheless, and the formal proceedings began in September 2004. During the court case, a lot of issues were raised. In Leanne's case, they knew that Evelyn had been at her house at the time of death because the police were tailing her, but there was unclarity about what Evelyn had actually done inside the house. It was originally suspected that Leanne died due to taking some drugs, using an exit bag with helium, and although all of these items were found in Evelyn's van, it merely proved that Evelyn had removed the items. It did not prove that she had brought those things, the drugs, the exit bag, the helium tank, to Leanne's house. Prosecution has a big burden of proof. Yes, indeed, and for good reason, but still, at times, it's a very high bar. And with Monique, let's not forget that her apartment had not been treated like a crime scene. That was a major issue. People were in and out of the apartment. There was also a lot of back and forth about how exactly she died. The final autopsy report said that she could have died from a heart attack, a point that the defense raised. But also, Evelyn was accused of supplying the sedative phenobarbital to Monique to help her die. Indeed, Monique had phenobarbital in her system, but for all they knew, that could have been her own prescription. They were only able to access her prescription records for the last 14 months, so it's possible that it could have been her own phenobarbital that was found in her system. Additionally, if you recall, Evelyn's van had been spotted at the scene at the time of Monique's death, but the van was reported to have been a Chrysler, when, in reality, it was a GMC, so that casts some doubt. Lastly, a large issue with the case was that police were accused of searching Evelyn's suitcase before they were granted permission, and that they were looking for something with motive or intent, which is not allowed. Evelyn pleaded not guilty to the two charges of aiding and abetting to commit suicide. She faced a maximum sentence of 14 years for each count, so 28 years in jail if she's found guilty. Definitely the rest of her life. Yeah. Evelyn's trial was a trial by jury. I was surprised to learn that the evidence the Crown had was actually quite weak. It was largely considered circumstantial. The defense maintained that Evelyn had been in contact with Monique and Leanne, but that she was acting out of compassion and with the intent only to provide comfort for them. The only concrete thing it seemed the prosecution had was the recording of Evelyn saying that she had, quote-unquote, helped Monique and others. But even that was not a clear admission of culpability. The Crown lawyers were reportedly very aggressive, and poor Evelyn was put through the ringer. 
but they felt a lot of pressure with this case because there were so many implications that would come from it. At this time, it was not an offense for an individual to commit suicide in Canada, but it was absolutely against the law for someone to help with the deed. Ultimately, it seems there is just not enough evidence to secure a conviction, and perhaps the jury was sympathetic to some degree as well. Author Gary Bosla describes the feeling in the court at that time. Naomi, can you share with us? Evelyn stood with perfect calmness, seemingly unafraid. None of us knew it was going to happen. I wondered if the verdict was guilty, if Evelyn would be taken away in handcuffs and shackles, as she had been when she was first arrested. The jury deliberated. They took some time. And when they returned, they found Evelyn not guilty on both counts. Critics were upset by the verdict. People from the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition were present, and they wanted to see Evelyn charged as a murderer. One person in attendance gave the statement, Unbelievable. This is terrible. Pretty soon, old people are going to think they have a duty to die. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people in support of Evelyn, and Leanne's family even supported the court decision. Leanne's brother and sister actually continued on after this case to advocate for choice in death. They took their plea to die with dignity all the way to Supreme Court. So, we've covered all this, and we have not yet touched upon the mystery that is Evelyn Martins. There's a fantastic article, again by Gary Bosla, and it's online. It's entitled, The Prosecution of Evelyn Martins, An Inquiry into the 2004 Trial. I recommend checking it out, as there are lots of interesting details that we just didn't have the time to include here. There is a link to the article in our show notes. So we'll take a moment to kind of understand Evelyn's motive. Evelyn sounds like a pretty rad lady, actually, according to this article. She had become a Catholic for a husband, uh, but then she drew away from the church. She didn't like how men made decisions for women about birth control. She eventually even came to doubt God, and she developed her own spirituality. She raised six children, largely on her own. She worked her way up to become financially stable and give them a good quality of life. Which was not always easy for a woman back then. Mm-hmm. And then one day, her brother, Cornelius, became very ill with bone cancer. Cornelius was in agonizing pain, especially toward the end. Evelyn and her family begged doctors to do something to help him, but no amount of morphine or other drugs could help with the pain. If Evelyn so much as touched Cornelius, he would be in more unbearable pain. There was no possibility of recovering, and Cornelius wanted to die. He wanted to end the pain. He said, If there is a God, please take me now. I can't take the pain. And with some time, he did pass on. But this experience deeply affected Evelyn. She did not believe that such suffering could be a part of God's plan. Evelyn moved to Vancouver Island, and at the Unitarian Church in Langford, she met someone who was a member of a group called Dying with Dignity. She began volunteering with that group. She believed that people had a right to know their options in death. She would share books and information with people and spare them having to have a grisly death from something like a gun which leaves unpleasant remains behind. And so, Evelyn became an angel of mercy, an angel of death. She's quoted as saying, I have a lot of compassion for people. I feel their pain. 
Helping the dying is just something I feel I have to do. Since 2006, we've had medically assisted dying available in Canada. There are some requirements, such as the patient's natural death must be reasonably foreseeable, their level of suffering high, and they must be able to consent. So what do you think about this case? Drop us an email at sorrymurderpod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at sorrymurderpod. This episode, we're asking any donations to be made out to dyingwithdignity.ca and uh, there's a link for uh, information and to donate. Sorry to love you and leave ya. Bye-bye. Bloopers. Bloopers. Look how backwards ahead. What they had wanted was, um, they wanted to thrust Evelyn into saying that Thrust. <laughs> <laughs> this is thrust. I know. <laughs> Sorry. And I'm Naomi, coming at you from the traditional unceded territory of the West Coast of the... Um... Hi. <laughs> <laughs> a former nun. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. I did it the wrong I was one. like, what's happening? Oh, no, sorry. Big boat. Oh, okay. So... Big was... boat. Oh. Big boat. Do <laughs> <laughs> you try to heed? She would just vomit. Sorry. Try. Eat. I thought so. Sorry. I was like, heed.